Welcome to Trade Policy Decoded, a podcast that shines a light on what's happening in trade policy in Australia and around the world. Brought to you by the University of Adelaide's Institute for International Trade and the Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment. Your hosts are Professor Peter Draper and Dr. Prue Gordon. Hello, Peter. Good morning, Prue. It's great to be back doing Trade Policy Decoded. I think this is episode five. It is, yes. I'm looking forward to it. And we've got a lot to talk about, right? We certainly do have a lot to talk about. So the topic for this podcast is trade and climate change. And it comes out of the ACETI annual conference that was held last week. It's a really hot topic, obviously, in the trade world and well beyond the trade world, obviously. There's a lot of work going on in in COP. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's a very timely conference and it was fantastically organised and run conference. So thank you for inviting me to that. Thank you. Yeah, and then coming about a month before the COP28 summit in Dubai, which will be a stock-taking exercise of the UNFCCC process. So where are we in the climate transition? The news is not good. We know that. And a key issue within that is the role that trade plays in either hopefully mitigating greenhouse gas emissions or very often contributing to it. And certainly the latter is the view I'm not sure it's a dominant view, but it's a view in the environmentalist community, which I saw very much on display in Geneva. And we spoke about that in, I think, episode two. So I think your conference really unpacked the key issues. So let's get into it. Terrific. So there were four key topics that the conference focused on. So the first one looked at how Australia can capitalise on opportunities in international clean energy markets. The second one was on CBAMs, carbon border adjustment mechanisms. Third, we looked at the US IRA. And fourthly, we looked at intergovernmental agreements supporting global green trade and investment. So my key takeaway from session one, which I found to be quite a mind-blowing session and discussion, to be honest, was really the opportunity that was presented by the clean energy transition and and measures to reduce carbon emissions. We had three speakers, Associate Professor Fiona Beck, John Grimes, who's the CEO at the Smart Energy Council, and Professor Rod Sims. I think for me, there were two key takeaways. One was growth of the renewable energy sector is going to radically change where cheap energy will be available and the impact that will have on industries both within Australia and globally. And then in turn, the impact that will have on the global flow of goods and services. So Fiona put up a map that showed where the key energy sources were for renewable energy. And Australia was really seen as being in the sweet spot of having access, and I think Rod Sims said Australia had the best international sources of renewable energy of pretty much any country, and that this would enable Australia, in terms of our trade investment, to shift from exporting primary produce, and particularly mining and energy resources, 
to producing goods that were energy intensive to make and then not so much exporting the renewable energy but exporting goods that had cheap renewable energy invested in them. So in terms of changing our manufacturing industry in Australia, this would radically transform Australia from being primarily an exporter of primary produce and services to really becoming a major manufacturing sector. So for me, that sort of blew my mind. Yeah, and I I agree. I think it's visually impactful when you see the map of the world and renewable resources set out in that way and Australia jumping out. But it's not the only jurisdiction. That was one takeaway for me. So all of Africa, for instance, in theory, shows up as a key solar energy space, in addition to which there's a very long coastline, so I could think of wind energy. But of course, the contrast between Australia and, let's say, Africa is capacity to take up the opportunity. Australia's got a lot going for it in terms of institutions, private sector capabilities, government capabilities, and, and so on. And one of the striking things for me, again, was how the Australian government and state governments have been pursuing their hubs, linking into hydrogen production, renewables that feed into hydrogen production, making it green over time. Of course, it's just look good to get over significant investment hurdles right across the board. And then once you've got that hydrogen available, that becomes the key energy feedstock for the processes that you've been describing. So we're at relatively early days yet, I think, as is the rest of the world in this clean energy transition. But as Rod Sims put it, but and also recently the Parliamentary Joint Committee put it, Australia could be a clean energy superpower. So that's the prospect. But that's before, of course, you get to all the well-known obstacles, which weren't so much canvassed in the panel, but have certainly been canvassed elsewhere from, for instance, farming communities not wanting wind turbines in their backyard or wanting more consultation etc. So it's still quite a long way to go, but certainly the prospects are, are interesting, I think. Yes, and I think a point on that issue of challenges, a point that Fiona raised, and obviously her background's technical and engineering, and she has a science background, was just the, the technical difficulties of achieving some of these outcomes. I think she talked about the building of a particular tank. So mm. the size of the tank required to store hydrogen physically hadn't actually been able to be built yet. So even at that granular level, the technical difficulties of achieving and capitalising these opportunities are, are massive. But that said, Rod Sims did make an interesting comment, which was Australia's greatest contribution to emissions reduction wasn't what we could do domestically, but it was how we would contribute to decarbonisation around the world through this use of our energy resources here, but also through developing the projects and the technology to then enable others to take up this technology and, and I guess to lead the way to some extent. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I've been doing a bit of work in the context of the HILT CRC, so Heavy Industries Low Carbon Transition. Cooperative Research Centre, that's the full acronym decoded. This is trade policy decoded after all. Within that CRC, there is a focus on the iron and steel 
industry, and that industry alone on a global basis accounts for something like 7 to 8% of global emissions. Now, the other industries covered in that CRC include aluminium, which is basically canned electricity, and then hydrogen as the feedstock, and then cement and lime, another major GHG emitter. But if one thinks of the iron ore proposition, currently, by some measure, Australia's largest export, we basically put the ore on big ships and ship it off to China primarily. But if you can get this hub combination right that we've been talking about and move from blast furnaces that use coal, and that happens principally in China, to using clean electricity powered by uh, hydrogen uh, particularly, then that opens up the possibility of reducing the iron in Australia. So you're adding value to it and then potentially using that reduced iron to produce clean, maybe even green steel, um, which could then be exported. The challenge, of course, is to find the markets for green steel. The flip side of that maybe also is the steel industry in Australia currently doesn't really export. We export a lot of scrap steel that feed other steel production processes. And so we import a lot of steel. Now, others are certainly planning to increase their exports of green steel as well. Some of that may find its way to Australia. So I think in the steel sector, there's a concern that they need some measure of protection, which then links into to panel two, right, which was about the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which I had the privilege of sitting on. And that was a very interesting conversation, I have to say. <laughs> And you played a wonderful role being the even hand between the views of His Excellency Ambassador Vicentin and David Alexander from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who presented starkly different views of carbon border adjustment mechanisms and whether we should or whether Australia should or shouldn't introduce one. And you were just this wonderful balancing act sitting in between both. And Peter, you did a wonderful job. But I thought, obviously, Ambassador Vicentin presented the European case for introducing CBAM, which they're in the process of implementing. We're in the introductory phase at this stage, so it's, it's up and operating, and there'll be a review, I understand, in 2025. But his view was this measure was very much focused on the environmental objectives of the policy. It wasn't a tariff, wasn't a, supposed to be a, a tax on trade, but it was about addressing a, a market failure. So his views were quite clear. And on the other side, we had David Alexander highlighting a number of concerns or potential concerns were Australia to introduce one, um, a CBAM. And that included the fact that it was, he saw it very much as a tariff, a tax on business, that there was potential for it to set a precedent that would then see other sectors seek similar kinds of tariffs, that it was very difficult to remove once in place. Was there were a number of really interesting arguments for and, and against Australia introducing a CBAM. Yes, it was, it was very interesting, and I think that captures the opposite ends of the spectrum well. So in the European case, they're coming from the environmental perspective, as you say, and what they're concerned about is the well-known concept of carbon leakage, which is essentially as their emissions trading system starts to bite as they phase out the free allocations particularly, 
domestic industry in the EU is increasingly paying the cost of the, the green energy transition. What they worry about is other jurisdictions are not doing the same. And so there is an incentive for those industries either to relocate production to jurisdictions such as India that don't have equivalent taxation systems in place, taxes on emissions, and then simply export back to the EU. So not only have you not solved the greenhouse gas emissions problem, but you've also potentially contributed to it because, let's say, steel production in India is actually more polluting than it is in, in the EU. So from an environmental point of view, that makes perfect sense. Their particular CBAM covers six sectors, but over time, and certainly about 2030, the intention is to expand it to all emissions trading system sectors, which are 64 in total. So it's greatly going to expand the scope of it over time. But on the other hand, it, it is a border measure. It's a carbon border adjustment. So it is a tax on imports and a tariff is a tax at the end of the day. It goes into the fiscus and that's where the EU's CBRAM will go into the general European Commission budget. And what Aki and others are concerned about is that when you tax goods at the border, it imposes costs on others, so consumers most directly, but also producers. So for instance, if we went for a CBAM on steel and taxed imported steel, who uses steel? Well, it's the construction industry. Construction is one of the biggest employers in Australia, but it's also crucial for cost of living purposes, lifestyle, et cetera. So you don't want the cost of construction to go up and housing, et cetera. But it's also the mining industry that uses steel in a range of different applications. So one can see the point that both sides are making, which really then suggests we have to be very careful how we design this. Uh, and that's before you get into the international relations questions. And maybe we can save those for a little bit later when we talk about panel four. Yes, it's going to be very complicated. It seems the Australian government is going, obviously we're reviewing whether Australia should introduce CBAM at the moment, trying to ensure it's WTO consistent. As you noted in the panel, is extremely difficult. And I mean, David made the point that there were other kinds of policy tools the government could introduce, which weren't a CBAM, which could try and achieve the same kinds of, of outcomes. So the complexity of introducing a CBAM really came home to me after, after that discussion. I think I was a little bit in the dark before the session and had my eyes wide opened after it. Well, hopefully we thoroughly confused you. But one of those other potential support programs is what the US is doing, right? Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA. And uh, you moderated that panel. I thought it was a particularly interesting panel. So do you want to tell us what was the nature of the conversation, what, what was on the table? So we had three speakers, Michael Sullivan, who was representing the US government. He works in the US embassy in Canberra. So we didn't expect him to make a call on what the US were doing was good or bad. He just gave us the story as to what the US was doing with the Inflation Reduction Act. And he particularly highlighted opportunities for Australia, and that was particularly in the critical mineral space. So having a free trade agreement with the US meant Australia had access to a number of the critical minerals programs and benefits in the IRA. So he spelt those out, which was great. So then we had Nisha McDonough from Edith Cowan University and um, Satya Tanner from Lautech, which is a Danish consulting firm. And she's really, as I said, I said she was at the coalface, but actually she's at the tip of the windmill 
of industries investing in green energy in Australia. So I tried to put the view that the Inflation Reduction Act was essentially industry policy. And yes, it sought to achieve environmental outcomes and industry development within the United States. But ultimately it was industry policy and it was representative of a broader shift towards industry policy across the globe to achieve environmental outcomes as well as national security outcomes. So I tried to make the point that industry policy has a long history of producing white elephants because of the nature of designing industry policy, that it's essentially public servants designing the policy, determining the criteria businesses need to meet, then businesses turning themselves inside out to try and meet those criteria, and then including timelines that aren't necessarily motivated or decided based on commercial imperatives, but on political imperatives. And that this created suboptimal commercial decision-making environments, which often meant, or which we have a history of seeing projects that aren't achieving commercial outcomes and aren't necessarily commercially sustainable. But I have to say, Nisha and Satya argued strongly for there to be increased Australian government investment in the renewable sector, such as actually proposing, and I Fiona Beck also proposed this in the first session, that the Australian government really needs to stump up $100 billion in order to support the Australian sector here. And the reason for that was she gave some examples of specific companies who had investors who were looking at investing in Australia who, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, were now looking at the US. So unless the Australian government provided that funding, it would be very difficult for companies who need to get through what she called the valley of death for, for startups that that funding and that government support was needed to help those companies in the early stages of development to really get over that valley of death and to establish themselves. Nietzsche's arguments were more tied to the national security arguments to why government really needed to invest in this sector. His point was more about countering China's role in dominating different clean energy sectors and I think we've seen that in solar panels we're seeing it now in electronic vehicles where unless the Australian government working with other western governments working with the United States working with Europeans if they don't invest in the development of these critical sectors then we'll see China dominate as they have in other sectors which puts us therefore at the mercy really of, of Chinese industry and trade policy. So that was my sense of his key argument. So I sort of felt a bit outnumbered trying to put my my case for why industry policy is not necessarily beneficial and not necessarily going to achieve the outcomes that it might aim to achieve. But I, you sitting in the audience, I'm not sure what you thought of, of the discussion, Peter. Look, I, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Uh, many things to agree with, some to disagree with and some to amplify on. So on your point about industrial policy, I had a couple of observations. So one is right now we're talking about the IRA, which by some estimates will shell out a trillion dollars, US dollars or more in the next 10 years, and they're already shelling out a lot of cash. The Europeans are responding in kind, and we're not really talking about what's happening in the EU. 
But they are putting in place a domestic subsidies package, which will rival the IRS. So they're going to be putting a lot of money on the table. And we know that the Chinese already do this. The Japanese are rolling out their own. All of these are much bigger economies than Australia. So I don't think we can succeed by playing the same game, which comes to your point. So I think industry policy is inescapable, and we've got that in various forms, but we need to do it more smartly and tailored to Australian circumstances, I think. And as I think Emma Aisbeth said, as her response on that particular panel conversation, we have the comparative advantage anyway. So we're working with a strong deck here. So we need to find out what are the right instruments to use. For example, maybe through the tax system rather than shelling out cash that bureaucrats have, have oversight of. That might be one, one response. So, so there's a lot going on in this space. But I think the national security arguments that both Misha and Satya were making are right. And you, you can't dismiss them. But there's also a very strong just green transition case that's much broader yeah, so so I came out of that panel, not necessarily with my mind changed, but perhaps with more questions about how you desire this and how Australia should be calibrating its its responses. And on that point of a lot happening, the final session looked at intergovernmental initiatives aimed at supporting global green trade and investment. And we started with Tim Yeend from the Associate Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he really set out quite an expansive list of initiatives that Australia is involved in, from the bilateral specific free trade agreements. There are a lot of provisions aimed at supporting the renewable sector and supporting the growth of green technology and supporting trade in green technology. Then in your regional agreements, talk about IPEF, and how the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework is including provisions, again, to better coordinate and to support emissions reduction measures with a group of countries and then the WTO, obviously, and the OECD and other multilateral organisations who are similarly conducting initiatives. So there's a, there is a huge amount going on. I think a point that you raised in relation to CBAMs was the need to really coordinate this. Otherwise, if we thought the rules of origin was a noodle bowl, this is going to be a dog's breakfast, really, if each country is coming out with its own CBAM or similar type of measure to support its own green growth, that if it's not coordinated with other countries. So that was quite an interesting description of just the range of initiatives going on. Yeah, there's a huge amount going on. A lot of that, Tim said, I, I would say fits in the box of cooperative agreements. So this is governments, whether it's in the context of the IPEF, for instance, or the Singapore-Australia Green Economy Agreement, getting together, focusing just on promoting clean energy uptake, technology transfers and so on, and backing that up with the development of instruments to support it. Now, some of those would be funding instruments, but they're also bringing in private sector players together to discuss development of clean energy projects, for instance. So there's a huge amount of that going on, and that's just going to increase. And then he also spoke about the 
Australia-United States Compact, which has got a long name, and I can't remember the full name of it, but basically it's focused on this space and it would afford Australian companies access to US IRA subsidies if they meet, obviously, certain criteria. So that's part of the way in which the US is responding to our concern about that giant sucking sound right, of investment leaving Australia or not coming to Australia in the first place because there's all these subsidies on offer in the US. But my concern about CBAMs is also that they can be designed in different ways and there is going to be a proliferation of these CBAMs, I think, across the world. So Regardless of whether you think of CBAMs as protectionism or addressing a genuine environmental problem, or maybe a mix of both, the fact is they are going to raise costs in a variety of ways. And I reckon it's going to lead to retaliation. And it has the potential to undermine also, I would suggest, and I did suggest this on the CBAM panel, the UNFCCC process. Why? Because the target of these CBAMs primarily is developing countries that don't have robust greenhouse gas emission reductions policies in place compared to certainly the EU. But a core principle in the UNFCCC negotiations is that developed countries must do more, developing countries less. That's accepted. It's called common but differentiated responsibilities. But the CBAM aligned with the developing countries to do more. (laughs) So there's going to be a lot of resistance, I think, And Australia needs to think quite carefully about that in the regional context, particularly if this is seen to undermine the UNFCCC process. So our specific neighbours, for instance, might be quite concerned about these developments. So a huge amount to play for, I think, in the build-up to the COP28 summit. There's a huge trade agenda in there, but primarily it's about the climate change issues, but the insertion of trade conversations into those climate change conversations is just gathering pace, I think. Mm. I, I can't end without mentioning one other issue that was raised by Brendan Pearson, and really it was the focus of his presentation, and it touches on a topic we raised in our last podcast on the Australia-EU trade relationship, and that was work that Australia is doing in the OECD, highlighting the contribution agricultural subsidies are having to greenhouse gas emissions. Now he's He referred to a piece of work that demonstrated quite clearly, according to Brendan, that agricultural subsidies have a disproportionate role in generating greenhouse gas emissions. And for that reason, Australia is arguing in the OECD that countries that subsidise agriculture should be removing those subsidies. Now, as you and I discussed last week, Australia has a long history of trying to get the Europeans and the US and other countries to remove their agricultural subsidies because we're big exporters of agricultural product and we believe open markets are the best way to ensure food security. So it was fascinating I could just see the Europeans rolling their eyes, I imagine, when Brendan rolls out this piece of evidence to say, you need to remove your agricultural subsidies because it's bad for the environment. I'm sure they see it just as another ploy. He said they're getting more traction with the climate change officials as opposed to the trade officials. And that's really no surprise if you ask me. Yes, so that's the repurposing subsidies debate, which is a very important one, I think. So just to drill down a bit, 
if we say a European farmer receives a payment from the European Commission to expand their production, so a production link subsidy, actually they've largely phased those out, I think, so this is probably more of a US issue. Anyway, let's say they get that, and, and then they clear the land to do so, and in the process contribute to deforestation. There's a clear link in that case between the subsidy and contributing to the climate change problem. So that's the kind of subsidy, certainly, that Australia would like to get rid of. I think we'd like to get rid of a lot more than that. But it's a powerful argument. So I don't think the Europeans can just ignore it. But they would argue, I suspect, with some legitimacy, that they have been repurposing their subsidies. And then they would point across the world to say, well, look at India, China, whose subsidies and entitlements have increased hugely in recent years, but they're not required to reduce those subsidies. And what are they spending that money on? You know, rice production uses water, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very complicated debate, but from a policy argumentation point of view, what it highlights for me is that for at least 40 years, we've been putting forward the case, a strong case, on the economic merits that agricultural subsidies are bad for trade. And I think that case is broadly accepted, but, but it's had virtually zero impact. So this shifting of tax, so to speak, hopefully it delivers some results, even if it is perceived as disingenuous by the Europeans, <laughs> amongst others. Yes, another worthy of another podcast. Indeed, indeed. Look, it's been a fascinating conversation again, Prue. Look forward to seeing it online and uh, enjoy the rest of your Friday. You too, Peter. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you soon. Great. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you for joining us for Trade Policy Decoded. Check out the Institute for International Trade and Australian Centre for International Trade and Investment websites for the recordings of all podcasts and to see what's coming up.